And uh, Jean Oatley is going to come and bring us our reading this morning, which is from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to chapter 5, verse 20. And if you've got a church Bible, you'll find that on page 1175. And this is entitled, Instructions for Christian Living. So obviously applies to every one of us, young or old. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. 
For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless seeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Jean, very much for reading. And can I encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we look at this great passage together. And can I welcome you as well? There's a few visitors here. You're really welcome with us this morning. I think every time I stand up here, I say we've got a great passage to look at this morning. Um, It's because every time we look at the Bible, it's amazing. And this is another great passage. And uh, it's pretty challenging. I've spent the last week or two just reading it and thinking about it and praying about it and uh, it's a really challenging passage but I think it's an absolutely crucial one for us as a church Um, as you saw from the reading it's a pretty long one I'm not going to try and explain all of it um, because we'll be here a long time Uh, I read this week that on the news in America the Guinness Book of Records uh, a new record has been broken for the longest ever sermon Uh, there was some fellow in America who preached non-stop for 53 hours and 11 minutes and uh, he also had a good sense of humour because he said, in, as he was interviewed by the paper, uh, some of the congregation actually fell asleep. I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm not going to speak for 53 hours and 11 minutes, I promise. Um, I just really want to look at three things in this passage. I want to look at a picture, I want to look at a command, and I want to look at a warning. So just three things in a long passage, and then you can do your homework, take these three things away, and just unpack the passage more because there's so much in it, and we can't even begin to get into all of it. Let's pray together, though, as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, would you still each of our hearts and minds now and help us to listen to your voice, that we might be changed by what we come to understand this morning, and we would live different lives as a result. Amen. Um, do you remember last week, um, we, uh, I finished with um, some maths, some, uh, an equation, and I said, oh, don't worry, I don't like maths, and I can't do numbers, so it's not that kind of an equation, but one will come up on the screen now. Uh, hopefully they'll click through it for us. But it was a little equation, just reminding us of where we got to at the end of chapter, halfway through chapter four, that if we're united as a church, and if the church has teachers who teach, and the church is full of disciples who learn and listen, 
and we will mature and we will grow and we'll be effective uh, to serve God. It's absolutely, see if I can bring it up here. It'd be nice for you to see it. There we go. Remember that unity in Christ, if we're united in him, we have leaders who teach and we are disciples who learn and grow. Then we will be mature. That was the focus of the passage. And our maturity enables us to be stable and then to serve. So last week was really about walking in unity. This week, Paul talks about walking in purity. That's his focus. Uh, when, since uh, Steph and I got married, we've been doing a lot of upcycling. That means we go to antique places and old warehouses and buy old furniture and do it up. Uh, and we're a great team because Steph buys the stuff, I clean it and do it up, and then Steph uses it. <laughs> it works really well. Now, the first thing you have to do when you buy an old bit of furniture is you have to give it a good clean. And this is a cloth that's been used to, to clean up the latest uh, a bit of um, furniture that we bought. Uh, it's pretty grubby, isn't it? And yet, as we've been looking in Ephesians, remember the, the first few chapters of Ephesians, amazing picture of the gospel. Do you remember last week I brought out the £50 note and Jackie picked it up? This is a picture of the gospel, the first three chapters, all about how wonderful it is to come to know Jesus Christ. It's something amazing, the fact that he's rescued us, that he's brought us back so that we can know God. He's guaranteed our inheritance. He's adopted us into his family. But when you receive something amazing, you don't just stare at it and say, well, that's very nice. You have to respond. So I said chapters 4, 5, and 6 is responding to the great news. So Jackie very kindly gave me the £50 note, her response to something lovely that she got. Well, this chapter is about continuing to respond. And my life is a bit like this dirty rag that I've used to clean up the furniture that Steph bought. It's dirty before I knew Christ. It was full of my sin. The ways I rejected God, the ways I didn't want to love him. But we've learned in the first three chapters, when we put our trust in Christ... It's like he makes us a completely new person. We're washed, we're cleansed. There's that lovely verse in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, and that's the phrase that we've been unpacking, meaning we belong to him, meaning we've been forgiven. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And that's why last week, you remember I looked at chapter 4 verse 1, if you have a look again. After three chapters of the gospel, Paul then gets in chapter 4 and he, he has this command, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So what he's saying is if you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, that actually comes with huge responsibility. I don't know if any of you have ever been sent off, um, perhaps in the businesses you work, by your boss to overseas or to on a business trip, or perhaps you are a boss and you've sent someone or some of the children or the teenagers, maybe you've gone on a school coach to an away match, you've been playing sport, you're on the bus. And you know the pep talk you always get when you're on the bus, when your coach speaks to you or the leader of your business speaks to you and says, you are representing the company or you're representing the school. Remember the badge. You can't just play or act or live however you like. You're representing me. And that's really what Jesus wants to say to each of us, that if you want to call yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, and if I do, it comes with a responsibility. There has to be a particular way that we live in response to all that God has done for us. Well, if you look in these chapters, in this little reading, I don't know if you notice, almost every verse is laden with a command. And if you read chapters 4 and chapters 5 together, five times you see the word live, live, live. So look at chapter 4, verse 25. Uh, each of you must put off falsehood. At 4.29, don't let unwholesome talk 
come out of your mouths. Now that's pretty key to unity that we were talking about last week, isn't it? And yet so often in church, the things that we say can cause great disunity and damage. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God, therefore. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 15, be very careful then how you live. If you're a bit sceptical here, you might be saying, well, that's just typical Christian, isn't it? There they are again, trying to be good. And here's a passage, and it's the Bible, just saying, be good, be good, be good. That's exactly what I thought Christians are about. That's why I don't want to be one. But actually, that's not what it's about at all. Because do you notice, chapter 4, verse 17, these are instructions to us from God. Uh, Paul says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. That's his way of saying, what I am telling you is what God has told me. These are instructions from God. And notice as well, chapter 5, verse 1, these are also instructions in response to God. So the challenge for each of us is, will I listen to the voice of God? And will my life be a response to what he's done for me? These commands aren't just try harder, be a good Christian, be good. These are commands from God to be lived out in response to what he's done. So you have to remember, chapters 4, 5 and 6 come after chapters 1, 2 and 3. And that's crucial, because being a Christian isn't about being a good person. It's about God changing us on the inside so that we live differently. So we're going to look at a picture, a warning, and a command. Uh, And first of all, the picture that is painted at the the first part of our reading from chapter 4, verse 17 onwards, is really a picture of a person who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord. A picture of someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord. Have a look. Chapter 4, verse 18. Where Paul gives a description of this person and says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their heart. So a person who doesn't know Jesus Christ is separated from them and him. And the reason so is because of a darkening of understanding and a hardness of heart. Now I don't say that to you if you're not a Christian believer to point the finger because that was a picture of me too. Before, by God's grace, he worked in my heart. And so often it continues to be a picture of me. But this is how Paul describes a person who doesn't know Christ. That there comes a point then when there's the inability or the unwillingness to respond to his love. Because the heart has become so hard and that is what distances us from God. But what does it lead to, verse 19? Having lost all sensitivity, that's the hardening of the heart, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Paul's basically saying, when you're separated from God, when your mind has been darkened, when your heart's become hard, then you just live life doing whatever feels right, whatever feels good. And whatever you pursue, you continue to pursue. That makes complete sense, doesn't it? Let me read to you something that a man who wasn't a Christian came to realise when he sought to pursue different things that weren't God. This is interesting. This is not a Christian, okay? He says this. Here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. That's the the belief that there's no God. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. Yet what you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in your life, 
you'll never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. You worship your body and beauty and sexual law, you'll always feel ugly. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the, being, on the verge of being found out, and so on. That's not a Christian who said that. That is someone who doesn't know God, but has come to realise that whatever it is in his life that he sought to pursue, to fill the place of God in his life, it's never ever satisfied. That's the picture that Paul paints of a person whose heart has become hard to him, who doesn't know him. But look at the difference then. Paul then turns in chapter 4, verse 20. Do you see what it says? That, however, is not the way of life you learned. So he's now turning to the Christians in the church, saying, that's not you anymore. That's not you anymore, because you are a new creation. And see what he says in chapter 4, verse 22. He talks about having a new attitude. Putting off the old self and being made new in the attitude of our minds, and putting on the new self. And then he goes on in chapter 5 and says, don't be partners with them, describing the person who continues to reject God. Don't be partners with them. So here's the danger. There's a real danger that as Christian believers, we can actually act as if we did not know Christ. And that's what Paul goes for here. There's a danger that your life no longer looks like you follow Christ. And we'll come to unpack why. Remember last week we were talking about maturity and unity. We won't mature as a church, and you won't mature as an individual, and I won't mature as an individual, if my profession of faith, who I say I believe and follow, doesn't actually change me. If we're not ever changed by Christ, if his spirit's not alive in us, his grace is not working in our life, we can't mature. I'm often asked, how can I grow as a Christian? How can I feel close to Jesus? It's a great question. Well, having painted a picture of a person who doesn't know Christ and kind of warned us of how often our lives, if we're Christian believers, don't follow Christ, Paul then goes on and he looks at really two things. He gives us a warning and he gives us a command. And these are the two things I just want to focus on. Because if we grasp these two things, everything else in this passage will begin to make sense. The warning comes in chapter 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I want to unpack that because that's the phrase I think we often don't speak of, we perhaps don't understand, but it's absolutely crucial to our growth as individuals and as a church. And then I want to unpack chapter 5, verse 18. The crucial phrase that works with that one. Be filled with the Spirit. And it's a key phrase that we've got to grasp as a church, one that's often misunderstood or taken out of its context, and we need to grasp its meaning. So we get the warning, and then we get the command. So first of all, chapter 4, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I think part of the reason that we struggle to understand what this could mean is that we think of the Spirit of God as being a force or a substance. But the Spirit is God, and God is relational which means that God can be grieved. Just like a parent can be grieved when a child is acting in a way that's causing them or their parent great harm. The Spirit is not a substance, not a force. The Spirit is a person. The Spirit is God. And that is why he can be grieved. 
you remember chapter 2, verse 22? In Christ, you are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. And we've seen all the way through the letter so far, haven't we, that God's desire is that you and I become more like Christ. So we grieve God who lives in us by his spirit, if we're Christian believers, if we resist his transforming work in our life. That's what he's talking about. Perhaps there's the the time in your life at the moment where you just know you're being disobedient towards him. There's something in your life that just keeps niggling away in your heart and you just keep playing it down. It's not a big deal. I know it's wrong, but I kind of like it. And I don't want God to have control of this area of my life. We grieve God when we don't listen to him. When he says, I'm your loving father and I long to speak to you. We grieve him when we never open up his word. We never reflect on what he says. When we never give him space when we're praying just to hear his voice and to respond. I think we can grieve God through our intellectualism. Just through knowing stuff that never changes our heart. Now we have to know stuff and our minds have to be changed. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So how you think and what you know is hugely important. But it mustn't just end there. We grieve God through our intellectualism when we just talk about him rather than grow to love him. And I think we can grieve God, another example, by refusing to forgive someone. Uh, we talked about this a, little, a few weeks ago in the evening service when we were talking about forgiveness. We really can grieve God when he has forgiven us the inexcusable in our life and we then withhold forgiveness from someone else. There's just a few examples. But you think of what it's like as a child and a parent in that relationship. When a parent sees their child hurting or doing something that causes them great pain, or making unwise decisions, it grieves the parent. Of course it does. It's hard for the parent. How much more then does your heavenly Father, who knows you and loves you, grieve when he sees you grieving his spirit by resisting his transforming work in your life, saying, God, I don't want you to be in control of all of my life. I want you to forgive me, I want to know you, but I don't want you to take control. I actually want to rely on my own strength, my own power. But grieving God's spirit is a major problem in our church because do you notice in chapter 4 verse 27 there was a little phrase do not give the devil a foothold. See every time we grieve God's spirit every time we resist his transforming work in our life we say no to God it's like we're giving the devil a foothold to climb all over us to influence us to get in and work in our heart and try and persuade us not to love God with all of our hearts. Try to persuade us to be selfish, to not grow. And we can grieve God's spirit all the time and it gives the devil a foothold in our life. Because the devil longs for you to become less like Jesus. The devil longs to steal your joy in following him. The devil longs that you do not become mature. The devil longs that your rebellion against God persists. That's why Paul said, chapter 5, verse 8, as you just carry on in the passage, you were once in darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So live as children of the light. See, a true Christian believer will grow. But if we grieve God's spirit, we may end up not experiencing the joy that he longs for us to experience in following him. It may be that we become, in a sense, spiritually dead, spiritually numb to all that God wants for us, all that God wants to do in our life. 
Now, I don't want to shake your assurance. If you have put your trust in Jesus and God comes to live in you by his spirit, he can never, ever leave you. Not if you're truly his. We know that because in chapter 1, verse 14, at the beginning of the letter, Paul talked about the spirit being a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And we also know it because in our chapter, chapter 4, verse 30, do not grieve the spirit. Do you see what it said in the second part? By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Once you have Christ in you, he will not leave you. But we can grieve his spirit and then he withdraws his transforming work in our life. And we just crack on in our own strength and we can live the Christian life. But he's not going to be working in us in the same way. He's not going to be alive in us in the same way. He's in you, but we keep crushing his work in our life. We're resisting him. Paul says that's incredibly dangerous. And that's why he quotes from a little song or a poem. We don't know quite what it is. Do you see chapter 5, verse 14? It's a little phrase. He says, that is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He's saying, look, Christian, Christian believer, there's every possibility that you're grieving God's spirit and physically alive, but spiritually become dead. Wake up. Come alive in me so that you can help others come alive. So I just want to ask you, Where does God need to wake you up spiritually? Where do you feel he's putting on your heart an area of your life where you're grieving him? Where growth in maturity is slow because you're resisting his work in your life? Because we mustn't be like that as a church. We must learn to listen to his voice and obey him. That's the difference between knowing about him and truly knowing him. That's challenging, isn't it? But it's a warning that Paul gives, and it's one we need to take to heart, we need to grapple with. But then he comes with a great command that should uplift us, that should encourage us. It comes in chapter 5, verse 18. Do not, be, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, and then later, but be filled with the Spirit. I get a little frustrated with this verse because often I feel it's kind of ripped out of its context and all of chapter 4 and 5 and indeed 1, 2 and 3 is kind of ignored and there's just this verse which is explained and all that happens is when it's explained people import into the verse what they think it could mean. So people see the word fill and they think, ah, what could be filled? Well, it's like a jug with holes in the bottom. I must be a jug and the spirit falls out of me and I need to keep topping myself up because the spirit keeps leaving me. That's only that understanding if we understand the Spirit as being a substance or a force. But when we understand that God's Spirit is a person who lives within us, God is Spirit but he lives in us, we're not so much a bucket with holes in which the Spirit leaks out of. It's more a kind of the flame within us just gets crushed in our spirits and our hearts because we just keep suppressing God's work in our life. He's there but he's not filling us. He's not taking control of all of our life. His influence isn't over all that we do. So just unpacking this verse, just notice a few things. Notice it's a command, be filled. That means as a church we cannot play this down. One of our values that we'll be unpacking on Thursday night is that as a church we long to be a spirit-filled church, a spirit-empowered church. We can't just play this down and say we don't need God's spirit. Because if we try and do that, we'll be doing things in our own strength. We won't be asking for him to help us. This is a command to each of us. You won't really see this in your translation, but the translation is plural. This is a command to all of us. So this isn't something for some Christians be filled with the Spirit and not for other Christians. This is for us all. 
it's, it's unpacked in what's called the passive tense. That means it's something that's done to us. So it requires us to be fully surrendered to God, to not close our fist to him, but to open our hands up and say, God, I need you to fill me. I need you to transform me and work in my life. So there's an openness to God doing this work in me. And it's also something in the present tense. So it's an ongoing thing. The literal translation of this would be, be filled and go on being filled. Not in the sense of a bucket with holes, keep topping up. But God's spirit is in you. Ask him to work in all of your life and keep asking him to work in all of your life. Ridding your life of all that doesn't honour him and saying yes to all that does honour him. That's what this is about. If we want to unpack it a little more, do you notice it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let's go find my verse. Do not uh, grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And then later it says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. When you're intoxicated with alcohol, or you've ever seen someone intoxicated by alcohol, that person loses control. They don't have control over who they are. They don't have control over their actions. And Paul paints that picture to say, when you're intoxicated with alcohol, you have no control. But when you're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit is the one who controls you. The Spirit is the one who's alive in you, transforming your heart. See, I can't honour God in my own strength. I need Him to be the one who's controlling my life. I need Him to fill me, all of me, and take over every single area of my life. So to be filled with the Spirit means to surrender control to God's Spirit and let Him change me so that I become more like Christ every single day. Of course that's about understanding, understanding what His will is for my life, but it's also about experiencing God, having an encounter with Him. So He's not just someone we talk about, but He's someone we know, someone we grow to know more, someone that we love, someone that we long to please this phrase be filled with the spirit I do not think that's speaking about an isolated incident in a person's life because this is an ongoing thing now that does not mean that God sometimes doesn't get hold of someone in the most amazing powerful ways and wake them up sometimes that's through an amazing spiritual experience sometimes people speak of being overwhelmed with a sense of the power of God Sometimes people speak about being overwhelmed with a deep, deep sense of conviction of their sin. Sometimes God gives that person an amazing picture or something just to encourage them. But that is God in his goodness helping that person with the way they need to be helped. But whatever God does in that moment to say, I love you and I belong to you, you belong to me, he wants to continue that work in a person's life. So this isn't just a one-off event. God wants to continue to fill our life, to influence all of our life. But we have to come to him with open hands and say, fill me. Take control. A truly spirit-filled church will be a Christ-honoring church. And we're going to come to see next week, and this is why this letter is amazing, the next week's passage is all about transformed relationships. Where does sin and hurt come? It comes in relationships. That's why we need to be filled with his spirit to enable our relationships with each other as broken people to honour God. A truly spirit-filled church will be a Christ-honouring church. It will be a church that wants to live in the strength that God gives, 
a church that wants to not just listen to the voice of God, but obey it. A church that wants to be open to God, sensitive to his spirit, sensitive to his leading. What does God want for us as a church? Not just what do we want to do for him. So as we come to a close, I just want to remind you something I said at the beginning when I was speaking. Chapter 4, verse 17. These are instructions to us from God. And they're instructions he gives us to live out our life in obedience of him. That is why chapter 5, verse 1 said this. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That is why we respond. All these commands about the way are we to live, it's all in response to the gospel. All in response to what he has done for us. And do you notice, if we are truly spirit-filled as a church, how does the reading end? It ends in great joy. That last phrase, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a picture of the church God wants us to be. And if we're rooted in Christ, and if we're maturing as a church, if we don't grieve his spirit, but we are filled with his spirit, asking him to transform and take over our whole life, then we'll be able to respond to the gospel and live a life that will honour him. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? A picture, a warning, and a command. Why don't you just take a moment of quiet just to perhaps flick through that passage and just in the moment of quiet, ask God to just lay on your heart what he has been saying to you this morning. And then we're going to share in the Lord's Supper as we remember the gospel and celebrate all he's done for us.